When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. It was a big day of soccer yesterday, I think, for anyone who is a soccer fan. But this is outside of being a big day of soccer that we have tons to talk about from yesterday, from the Timbers, from the Thorns, from the World Cup, from other tournaments maybe that we won't talk about because they're not as important as the World Cup. <laughs> we also have to talk about the fact that this is Richard Farley's last episode on Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, it's finally come, this thing that we warned everybody about seven months ago or two months ago. But yeah, uh, the time is here. Jamie Goldberg has a spectacular succession plan in place. The show is not gonna, not only going to be in good hands, but much better hands. And um, if you can't tell, I'm overcompensating for the fact that it's always a little bit sad to move on from something. But um, as we found out a couple of weeks ago when the show was delayed, this is kind of something that needs to happen, not only for me, but for the show. So, yeah, why don't we enjoy our last hour of broadcasting together, Jamie? Yeah, I am excited to get going. I, I will make the announcement now just so everyone's prepared going forward. But Caitlin Murray will be joining the show. Uh, we won't be on uh, next week as we everyone she gets back from the world cup i have um some vacation i got to go on to uh for uh some family stuff i got to hit so we'll be back the week after um and caitlin will be joining the show so i'm super excited about that i'm really sad to see richard go but but i'm glad we get to have this last episode yeah no this this will give the show a chance to open a whole new chapter and you know with every host the show has been so different. I think you and I have found out from people that they felt this show was very different after <laughs> I came on. But it was the same thing when you came on and joined Chris, and Chris came on and joined Michael, and Michael and Kelly had their show. So, you know, new chapters being written all the time in the annals of Soccer Made in Portland. Yeah, we will see the new chapter. But let's not talk about new chapters right now. Let's talk about what happened in the past, in the last few days. Let's start with yesterday's game, uh, Timbers at New York City. I think... I would have been very happy with a draw. I think any Timbers fan, anyone watching this game, go going the game, would say if the Timbers can just sneak a draw here, get a point, that would be good. I didn't even think that would happen. I said they would lose two to one. This was not the game I expected. Really? I mean, like like style wise or result wise. 
okay, yeah, that's that's pretty reasonable considering they hadn't lost since <laughs> April. So uh, I think if you were predicting the Timbers would go out there and get a victory in this game, you were probably a very loyal person. Uh, but in the way the game played out, I think we saw that there was always a way for the Timbers to win this game and the way that they could ended up producing a one nothing result. Yeah, and you said uh, Timbers with less than 45% of possession. That that was correct, I believe. Yes, they had. Yeah. Uh, I believe New York had 67% of possession. Um, but the Timbers came out with a game plan. Geo rotated his lineup, but not not made three or four changes. Uh, we, we saw Diego Char was on the bench. Uh, we saw that, obviously, Tui Loma is still injured, but Julio Cascante was on the bench. Jorge Marrero was on the bench. Viafania and Adonella are injured as well. Um, so we, we saw some changes there. Abobasi was on the bench as well. But there was clearly a game plan. So let's just start with the first question. I mean, in terms of Gio's game plan, um, Wesley wants to know how amazing was Gio's plan lineup coming to this game? I, I feel like he says, I feel like we have a handful of games where Gio has just surprised everyone and it's paid off. Um, so what did you think of the game plan? What was effective about it? And how big was this for the Timbers? I think the game plan reflected uh, Giovanni Savarese's high degree of knowledge of what it's like to play in Yankee Stadium. And you saw this from both teams, and the fact that both teams looked somewhat similar shows you that Giovanni Savarese had that knowledge. Um, you saw teams playing over lines instead of through them. The field is so compact, and teams can adjust how they play such that trying to play through their opposition is kind of a waste of time. And I feel like for a lot of managers who maybe aren't as experienced with the unique challenge of Yankee Stadium, it maybe takes them 45 minutes or 30 minutes to start adjusting their team. Giovanni Savarese gave his team a 90-minute window to play like they should at Yankee Stadium, and I think it played off. You um, you look, think back to before the goal, the ball that Sebastian Blanco played over the defense to Brian Fernandez. I mean, that's something that the Timbers do anyway, but... They really tried to, when they were coming out of their own end, try to hit that ball over the defense and not give the defense time to set up. And I thought that was key um, in how good the Timbers looked from the get-go. Now, the goal came from a set piece, and I think the Timbers got a little bit lucky that New York City's defending wasn't very clean on that play. But they also kept a clean sheet in the game. And although Steve Clark had a very good game, he had five saves... I didn't feel like the shutout was undeserved. I thought the Timbers played a very good game. And I think Giovanni Savarese's uh, lineup, and not only that, not his tactics, but like knowing that Jorge Moreira's biggest strengths were not going to be a factor at Yankee Stadium. Like Jorge Moreira's ability to cover ground and get into the attack as quick as possible. On a smaller field where teams don't have to cover as much ground, yeah, why don't you pick this game to have, be it? have it be his days off or even Diego Chara's ability to kind of be more than one man and the the radius that he can cover from his position. Yeah. Why don't you pick this game for it to be his day off? And what do you think, Jamie? Yeah. I think it was really smart in terms of knowing what the field was going to offer and what lineup rotations could work. Um, I, I think it, it was, we talked about sort of what kind of lineup rotations were we going to see? He, he really did sort of go with a mixed lineup there. Some players came back in that we haven't seen in a while. And I think the players did a really good job of executing the game plan. This is similar. The possession bit is similar to obviously last year when the Timbers played NYCFC, which was another game that sort of geo won with his game plan. Um, they were fine conceding possession. I, I think there were some opportunities that they didn't want New York to get that New York did get, but they did a good job of staying organized and disciplined on defense. It was 
funny to hear Gio say disciplined at the halftime um, when he spoke to TV, the t- television on halftime, just because they were coming off a span of five yellow cards in like five minutes. But yeah. but I get what he means in terms of the, how they were disciplined on defense, organized, composed. They really were able to absorb the pressure without overall allowing New York to get too many dangerous chances. Clark made five saves in the game, but I'm trying to think back. I, he tips that one over the ball in stoppage time. That's a huge save. But I'm not sure if there's a save he makes that you wouldn't expect your goalkeeper to make, um, a good yeah, goalkeeper yeah. to make. So the Timbers did a good job of overall preventing New York. I mean, New York could have probably done better on a few opportunities. There's the one, I forget who it is, that gets behind the defense uh, where they put over the bar. But the Timbers overall did a good job of preventing New York from getting too many chances uh, that were all that dangerous. And I think the clean sheet was definitely deserved. I completely agree with you, including what you said about Steve Clark's saves. The save at the end that he pushes over the bar, it was more dramatic than yeah. difficult. And that's one of those situations where and I really wish people would apply this to other saves that they see goalkeepers make. Is it more shocking if a goalkeeper would have missed that? Because if it is, then it's probably not that great a save. It's a save that everybody should make, right? And it would have been it would have been a howler if Steve Clark didn't make that save. But I do think that Steve Clark in these last couple games have shown part of his skill set that makes him distinct when we're talking about these goalkeeper battles that have happened and are likely to happen as the year goes on. There were a couple times that he was just very quick to get to balls played into that space over the top. And we talked about that a couple minutes ago about how when you're playing in Yankee Stadium, that ball is more important because it's more difficult to play through lines. So to have a goalkeeper that's going to be aggressive to get out there and cover that space was a plus. And I thought Steve Clark, just like he did in the previous game against Dallas, showed that he is he's very adept or he I want to put it like this. He has become very adept at reading that space because I don't think this is the goalkeeper Steve Clark always was. But it shows you that even at his age, if you kind of – this sounds so cliched – if you put your mind to it, but literally he put his mind to reading the game this way and he's doing a great job of it. So so looking at the game as sort of a whole – this was obviously a huge win for the Timbers. They only played three more games on the road – uh, after this this game, they're still in ninth place in the Western Conference standings, ha- exactly at the halfway point of the season. But when you look at how many home games they have coming up, being able to sort of steal three points on the road at a really difficult place to play, snap a 12 game on Bean Street that New York City had, um, I think it's hard not to just say this was a massive win. I think one thing that's interesting, just looking how the Timbers play, especially with a mixed lineup, um, and this is what Andy asks. Are the Timbers really, like, really good? <laughs> Gotta have the like in there. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, are the Timbers, like, are the Timbers, you know, like, really good? Um, I don't know. There's been a lot of people in the national eye start paying attention to the Timbers ever since their goal-scoring explosion and the reincorporation of Brian Fernandez. And I just feel like the sample size is so small right now. We've seen some very good games from them, but we've also seen other games where – it hasn't looked as good. Um, I think they look better because they've been playing at home against teams that are a little bit handcuffed right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Timbers had the the short end of the stick for the first three months of the season. I think the one data point, though, that is most convincing to me is the loss to LAFC. We saw, again, this weekend, LAFC won 6-1 to one against a Vancouver team that's been hard to score goals against all year. They scored six goals on them. The Timbers played LAFC pretty evenly in that game. And we'll find out a little bit more on Wednesday in Los Angeles at Open Cup. But I feel like the Timbers, their ceiling is there. 
I, I just need to see more consistency out of it, Jamie. Uh, wh- what do you think? Am I being, I don't know, too hard on the Timbers? I, th- I think in an MLS season, there's a lot of ups and downs, and this team has already had a lot of ups and downs. So I, I think it's fair to be a little bit wary. Um, I, I think teams will adjust to Brian Fernandez, and I, I think we're already seeing that a little bit. Uh, obviously, he didn't uh, get on the board in this game. He's not going to get. He's not going to score every game. But I, I think the Timbers have shown really well in the attack recently. Uh, I think maybe on the road against New York, it wasn't going to be as easy, but they still found a, a number of good opportunities. I think what's most exciting for me is that the defense, maybe. Maybe we don't know how good the defense is, but they are definitely becoming much more consistent, much more difficult to break down, especially, I mean, obviously compared to the beginning of the season, but we've seen this growth on the defensive end throughout the year. And to be able to go into New York and get a shutout, we, we've talked about some of their last shutouts, but, but the fact is three out of the last four games, they've shut out their opponents. And that's not an easy thing to do. So I think if you, if you can assume that a, attack with Fernandez, Blanco, Valeri, uh, Jeremy Bobasi is going to be able to score goals. And you also have a defense that is now capable of getting shutouts. I think it's something to be really excited about. I completely agree. Defensively, I think we should talk about this more because New York City came into this game for the whole season averaging something like 1.7 or 1.8 goals per game. Disclaimer here, I don't remember the exact number. But over the last 12 games or so, they were averaging over two goals a game. Things had really started to click. And now the team that we saw on Sunday, it didn't have their best goal scorer. Aber was injured, but it still had a lot of dangerous parts. Maxi Morales is one of the best players in league is his position. Valentin Castellanos is a really good player. And the Timbers were able to keep that clean sheet. It was the first time this year that New York had been shut out at Yankee Stadium. I think that says something, and it says something a little bit louder when some of the people that we've been critical of in the past we're in the team. I'm specifically talking about Claude Dielna. Now, I'm, I'm not sold on Claude Dielna yet. You have, to, you have to put the weights on both sides of the scales here, right? And there was a lot of weight on the bad side of the scale through his first three or four appearances. And there were even moments on Sunday where he looked a little bit shaky. But it certainly was a much, much better performance than we saw against Montreal. And now this is the... Well, I mean, he was involved in a clean sheet at Yankee Stadium. That has to say something in his favor. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly his best performance as a timber, uh, but that doesn't say much because there hasn't been a lot of good performances, but it was his his best performance as a timber. I thought Marco Farfan, um, especially in the first half, early in the game, he he was, um, did a really good job. And this was only the second start of the year. To have that sort of depth sort of growing on defense, if players like this can keep it up, if Farfan can push um, to get more minutes, and, and you know you have Viafania that's going to be able to come back from injury who's been playing well. You know Jorge Marrera, who has been up and down defensively, but I think has had some good outings recently, um, can come back into the team. You know Bill Tuiloma is going to come back off that injury at some point. And you see that, you know that, what Jeff Adanella can do. Um, and you see why Steve Clark has come into that starting goalkeeper role as well. I didn't think there's a lot of reasons to be excited about what the potential of this defense is and what they're showing right now. And, and I, I think if the defense can get settled, if, if they can start consistently putting in good performances, like they have been in the last few weeks, I, I think the Timbers have a good enough attack to do the rest. I want to go back to how you started this part of the show and talking about how big of a win this was for the Timbers on Sunday. Through the last few home games, particularly in MLS play, I have sensed this feeling, or maybe it's something that I'm just creating in myself, that 
every home game feels like a must win at this point. And a lot of that is just because looking at the standings, it's hard to see a path back to the playoffs unless at home the team averages two points a game, which is a very high number. I think historically the Timbers have been around more 1.8. And they've already dropped three points to LAFC, which is not a bad loss, but it just shows you the margin of error. If you can pick up these points here and there on the road, especially if they're points that you wouldn't have otherwise expected to get, then all of a sudden every home game doesn't necessarily feel like a must-win game. You can have one, maybe two slips if you're having if you're putting a team out there on the road that's capable of getting those points back. Now, this weekend against Colorado, I'll see how it feels. It might feel like a must-win game just because Colorado has been such a bad team. On the other hand, Colorado hasn't been so bad for a couple months. Either way, if the Timbers can be as productive on the road as they have been throughout the season, then maybe they won't need to average two points a game at home in order to make the playoffs. Yeah, I think there's still going to be that feeling of the Timbers are, everything's going to feel like a must win at home until the Timbers are above the red line. But the Timbers are only four points above the, or below the red line right now. I mean, you look mm-hmm. at Colorado and Orlando coming up at home. This is a big stretch for the Timbers to see once they are done with those games and the game at Seattle to see sort of where they stack up in the standings at that point. Um, but yeah, this was huge. This was one of the biggest wins of the season for the Timbers. I, I'm, I think, you know, you go look at Columbus and turning points and things like that, but just to be able to go on the road and get, get a win like this in New York to start off a five game in 15 days stretch with a win away from home. It's huge. Absolutely. And another thing that you talked about was the team's depth. When you were talking about the defense, you were kind of going position by position and talking about the options at each position. And it's something you and I have talked about on the show during the whole time I've been on it, that the Timbers were able to specifically with the Darlington Nagby trade, but also with the Fernando Adi trade, get resources that allowed them, in my opinion, to build the deepest roster in the league. But At the top of that roster, there was still a question of whether they had the elite quality players to compete with the Atlantas of the world or the LAFCs of the world. And I think that's really why Brian Fernandez's acquisition is looking so key, because there was the foundation set for a player to come in and really just be that added piece, that one piece that the team was missing. And now all of a sudden, when you look at the team's elite talent... Well, you've got Brian Fernandez, who's as good a goal scorer as you could hope for. There's a former MVP, Diego Valeri. There's maybe the best central midfielder in the league, Diego Chara. There's somebody like Sebastian Blanco, who is one of the best players in the league at his position. You've got Larry Smabiala, who I get the debates about how good Larry Smabiala is, but if you have him anchoring your defense, you still feel okay about your defense. That's the core of elite talent on this team. And quite frankly, I think that's a core where it's not necessarily going to be the best core of elite talent in every single game, but you feel like with that core of talent, you have a chance to win every single game. And I'm not sure that before Brian Fernandez, you really felt that you could generate the goals necessary to have that kind of confidence. And you you talked about sort of the top of the Timbers roster there. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the the depth and specifically – we talked about this yesterday on Twitter, and David asks, uh, does this count as snapping the winning without Chara's streak, even though he was subbed oh. in? Oh, 14 more minutes, and this could have been put to bed. Yeah, I know. We would have never had to talk about this again. Um, well, I don't think it counts, but I also think it put, provides context to the streak. I mean, what do you think, Jamie? I think you and I have talked about this so often, about how this seems to be a weird confluence of significance and randomness. And yesterday's game just pointed it out. 
Like this streak only survived because Giovanni Savarese did what a coach needs to do, put his team in the best position to win. But odds are they're still winning that game if Diego Chara doesn't come in. Gio Savarese can't say that. He can't sit there and go, well, odds are we still win this, so I'm not going to use Chara. No, you have to use Chara. And so the streak kind of persists. I mean, you quoted a stat to me on Twitter that was a great kind of compromise stat, right? <laughs> Games in which he started. They won a game which he didn't start yesterday. That's significant. And I also think it reminds us that this streak, even though everybody wants it to be over, is a little bit weird. Well, I, I mean, it's actually interesting. He hasn't been subbed on very often. I, I think in this streak, he's only been subbed on one other time. And it was clear that they missed him and he couldn't do enough coming on in that other game and they ended up losing it. Um, that was the Minnesota game last year where they were down yeah. three goals so at halftime. You, you, that's a little bit different. This one this one feels different to me than anything else in the streak because I, I think it's clear that Chara's impact on the game did not lead to a win or a loss. I, I think the fact that the Timbers were able to start a game without Chara in the lineup, get a lead, hold New York off the board, and, and didn't seem to miss too much of a beat um, with Renzo Zambrano and Andres Flores coming to the lineup, I think that's a really good sign. I, I think it shows that the Timbers are growing and, and that some of these midfield options, I, I mean, Christian Paredes didn't, wasn't even involved in this, and we, I think we see him as probably the Timbers' second-best defensive midfielder. Um, the fact that they're able to use that midfield depth is, I think, really showing how that midfield depth is growing, and, and that it is a good sign going forward that they sh- they can um, get results even if Diego Chara has to rest a game here and there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about some of that midfield depth because we have a question from Stu. How have you felt about Renzo Zambrano's performances? I think they've been up and down. I, I think that he, in moments, has looked like a-, a player who is getting used to the MLS level, who needs to maybe do things a little bit quicker than, than the USL level, who can't hold the ball as long, who is going to get the ball taken off him if he, he does this. But I, I think at the same time, he, he has shown that he can be an effective option in the midfield. And, and as he continues to get minutes, I, I think he's just going to adjust to this level. I, I think he has shown that he can be a really good and important depth piece for the Timbers. And, and, and I think he did a good job to come into a tough place in New York yesterday. Um, and uh, you know, do the game plan that he needed to do, execute the game plan. I think the Houston performance just got our hopes up. I mean, he played so well in that debut in Houston that, you know, if he would have played that like that every week, and maybe because of the sample size at that point, there was reason to believe that he could, we would immediately start saying, wow, between Chara and Paredes and Zambrano in the middle, this is a great trio to have. But he's having some ups and downs, and I think building on one of the things that you mentioned, it's kind of a adjusting to the speed of the game at this level a little bit. You know, we saw that in the Houston game where he got caught on the ball, led to the corner. That was the only goal the team gave up. And we're seeing a lot of those moments, frankly. But we're also seeing some moments where, well, pretty much almost the rest of his game, uh, it's been pretty good. His distribution is pretty good. We see his ability to get into some tackles. Um, and he does always seem to be in the, the place that he needs to be in. It's going to take some time. So to answer your question, Stu, I felt pretty positive about his performances, but like everybody else, I think I got my hopes a little bit up after Houston, and I've just had to come back down to earth a little bit. So we mentioned it earlier with the five yellow cards in the span of uh, five minutes uh, to close out the first half in the game. It it didn't really impact the game, um, which makes it 
like you said in your story, a, a kind of fun, funny stat. But is it going to impact anyone in terms of yellow card accumulation suspensions that you know of uh, coming up? I saw that the discipline summary was not updated as of now. Um, as of yesterday, Char was the only one uh, in danger of a suspension ha- had he picked up another yellow card. Yeah, I think this moves Sebastian Blanco a little bit closer to the second suspension. I believe he's two two yellows away at this point from his second suspension. So we're at the point now with both him and Diego Char where you know they're on. It doesn't take that much for them to get the second suspension. So that was the only one that really jumped out to me. The other people, it was Dyron, Espria, um, Zarek Valentin kicked somebody in the face in other games. Well, I don't. How did you feel about that one, Jamie? I actually would have been fine with either a yellow or a red card. I was fine with the the official using their judgment. I mean, when you kick somebody in the face and they're only bending their head down, they're not like at knee level or something like that. Your foot's not supposed to be there. Yeah, I think the Timbers got a little lucky for that not to be a red card. At the same time, I would be surprised, given that I, I think there is some debate, I'd be surprised if we saw something like the disciplinary come back and issue a suspension uh, retroactively or anything like that. So the other yellow cards were Claude Dielna. Obviously, that's not a huge deal. And who am I forgetting here? Was it Valeri that picked up the other one? Uh, I don't know. That sounds right, but I'd have to... See, this is what I was talking about, Jamie. There's so there's many. Gonna be these trivi- there's going to be these trivia challenges in the no, future. No, it was, it was Marco Farfan. Okay, another one we are not really concerned about that much. So it's really just Blanco, and the nature of Blanco's yellow card, too, was, wasn't great. Just like Claude Dielnes was a little bit silly, him just kicking a ball. <laughs> Sebastian Blanco basically was arguing another yellow card and got a yellow card of his own. <laughs> so at this point, you would prefer your Blanco-caliber players not do that. Yeah. Absolutely, especially Blanco and Chara should uh, avoid silly yellow cards whenever they have the chance. Right, right, definitely. But other than that, it it just was kind of like, I don't know, it just seemed weird. It just kept coming and coming and coming. And um, thankfully, that doesn't happen too often. We can just kind of laugh about it. Um, another thing that doesn't happen too often, Jamie, is Brian Fernandez being kept off of the score sheet. Uh, Peter, with a question that I think is incredibly important, he says, Brian Fernandez hasn't scored in 135 minutes. What's wrong with him? What's wrong with Brian yeah. Fernandez, Jamie? I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, he's, he's got to step it up. I, I, just, I just don't yeah, know what else to say. <laughs> you know, we, we debated last year, why was Giovanni Savarese using Dairon Espria's striker so often? And we've seen him use there occasionally this year. I, mean, I think this is why. Like, there really isn't that much difference between <laughs> Brian Fernandez and Dairon Espria when you get, get right down to oh, it. Oh, that's so mean to Espria. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Espria, Espria actually put in a good shift yesterday, and, and which is, you know, good for him. He's been living in this kind of middle world between being way too good for USL where he scored six goals in six games and not quite having a role even in 18s a lot of times for the Timbers so it was good to see him come out come out there play well almost score a goal as he had a ball deflected and then hit a keep hit the keeper and hit the post in the first half and other and really did a good job turning Ben Sweat on that play so it was nice to see some spark from him. Yeah and I think with Brian Fernandez I, I do think there's maybe a little bit of a worry going forward that teams will adjust him and how will he adjust after that. But even in this game against New York, maybe you, maybe he could have had more opportunities, but he had two, two goals that were called offside and a third opportunity. They, they think he absolutely felt like he should have been able to put away. So he's still um, obviously um, turning this joke into a little bit of seriousness. He, he's still obviously finding the opportunities he needs to find it. And there, I don't think, I don't think we've seen teams get to a point where they have figured him out and been able to shut him down. I don't think we've seen that yet. 
Yeah, and there's going to come a point where teams are going to figure out something that works, and it's going to be incumbent on Valeri, Blanco, Obobasi, whoever is playing at that time, to take advantage of it. Because odds are, I mean, I don't know if this is how it will be, but I think odds are it's going to come from trying to stay a little bit more compact and allowing the fullbacks to be in a better situation to help against those center backs as Brian Fernandez starts beating them behind the line, starts peeling off into the wide spaces. And instead of being able to obtain possession and either go one-on-one against those center backs or quickly get off a shot, there'll be a fullback there. So when that happens, it's going to be incumbent on Sebastian Blanco. It's going to be incumbent on Jeremy Abobasi to take advantage of those spaces, Diego Valeri to find them in those spaces, and then those players to make the secondary runs onto those balls into the box. That'll force other teams to say, hey, we have to get people wide in order to prevent them from playing those balls. That isn't quite happening yet, but it looks like that might be the evolution. And when it happens, the rest of Timbers players are going to have to step up and execute. Yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting to see which Timbers players have to step up and execute on Wednesday, uh, given the lineup changes we saw uh, from Savaresi in New York. The Timbers are going to LAFC uh, at 7.30 p.m. Wednesday, quarterfinals of the U.S. Open Cup. Uh, this sounds familiar because the Timbers lost to LAFC <laughs> last year in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open Cup. But what are you sort of expecting from this game? We, we saw a mixed lineup in New York. Um, what does that mean, in your opinion, heading into this game in terms of what lineup we can expect from Savarese? I would expect a strong lineup in this game. I would expect the players who didn't see full minutes at New York to be featured on Saturday against Colorado and pretty much everybody be fe- featured on Wednesday. Those players that played Sunday and Wednesday, probably going to be bench players against Colorado. I think the way they're setting this week up is, except for a couple of players, and those couple of players have injury concerns, they're probably going full bore against LAFC. Now, some of that might be dictated by how the players recover over these next couple of days, but I think this is a very important game uh, to the Timbers. I think they want to go farther in Open Cup. I think there's a sense that they're close to winning something here. I don't think you can understate the significance of LAFC. Not, I don't want to get into this rivalry thing again because we've talked about it. I think it's both a real thing and maybe a little bit of an overstated thing right now. But LAFC is a measuring stick right now. It's becoming very clear that if you're going to try to win something in MLS this season, you've got to have a, fi- a way to deal with LAFC. And so this is an opportunity to try to find a way to deal with LAFC. But I also say we think about the two times the teams have already met this year. I do agree with Giovanni Savarese that the first 60 minutes in L.A. earlier this year were good. But the last 30 minutes showed what LAFC can do. And I do think the team played well over 90 minutes at Providence Park. They just had a mistake very early on that kind of changed the game. This is an opportunity to continue making progress, Jamie. I want to know how you think about it from a more detached and, quite frankly, a little bit more objective view than me. Uh, How do you think the team should be approaching this game? How do you think they will be approaching it? I tend to think that it should be a more mixed lineup, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is. My, I guess my question going into this game is you kind of indicated that you felt that the players that started, the top players that started yesterday in New York would probably go against LA and then sit Colorado. And that to me sounds like a dangerous strategy. That means that players like Fernandez and Blanco and Valeri aren't going to play home against Colorado. I think, and this almost gets into our next preview, but I think Colorado is as close to a must-win game as you can get um, at this point in the season. Uh, Given that it's at home, given it's against the weakest team, uh, one of the weakest teams in the Western Conference, I think they are uh, the lowest in in the standings right now. 
And obviously, maybe you can. Maybe the Timbers feel like they can rotate their lineup and still get a win against Colorado, but I don't know that that's a risk they want to take. I think you see that Chara uh, didn't start. You see that Abobasi didn't start. I think you expect those players to start against LAFC. Jorge Marrera, uh, I think Steve Clark, a goalkeeper, is someone that can go all three games. That, that shouldn't be an issue. But I have more question marks about what they're going to do in terms of Blanco, Valeri, Fernandez. Um, because what they do this game is going to impact what they can do against Colorado. And I think they, I, I think that the Timbers have taken U.S. Open Cup seriously. I think Savarese wants to win this game. If he doesn't put out a strong lineup, he's not going to have a chance to win this game. And so I understand if he ends up going with a strong lineup. But I think sacrificing Colorado in any way, if they end up going out, whatever happens Wednesday, if they ended up going out Saturday and losing to Colorado or even getting a draw at home, I think that's going to be a disappointment. Okay, so let's walk through the changes that I think could happen. I think Julio Cascante comes in yeah. for Claude Dielna. And what I think that means is that we might end up with the Dielna-Cascante pairing on the weekend. I think you can beat Colorado with that pairing, even though it's not your best pairing. I think that Zarek Valentin switches over to left back and Jorge Marrera starts at right back. If that means Jorge Marrera and Marco Farfan start on the weekend, I think you can beat Colorado with those players. In midfield, I think there's a possibility Sebastian Blanco doesn't start against LAFC. And I think that a part of that is to do with maintaining his knee at this point. But that means Marvin Loria is in there. Or Jeremy Abobasi is in there. Or both. Maybe Loria comes in for Aspria and Abobasi comes in for Blanco. That probably means on the weekend that you're not starting Valeri and Fernandez or Valeri or Fernandez. And I think... That means Jeremy Obobese starts up top, Marvin Loria starts at the 10, or maybe Thomas Konechny comes in. And at that point, you're making a number of changes where, ooh, this is starting to get maybe a little bit dicey. But I still think you have a team in there that you can expect to win with. And I think you have Fernandez, I think you have Valeri on the bench. And at that point, Blanco's probably come back into the lineup for Saturday. I think all of those changes are pretty mild. Now, accumulated, yeah, it maybe introduces more risk against Colorado. But I don't think there's an 11, once we go through all those changes, that puts you in a place where you don't feel like you can win the Colorado game. You'll still have the reinforcements on the bench. And I think while, the, while you are stretching your players a little bit and you do have, what is it, a Thursday game at home against Orlando yeah. coming up, uh, I think you're in a good place to deal with that because you don't have any travel in between. So I mean, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I don't know how Giovanni Savarese is going to approach this. They obviously haven't been in market now for four days, so I haven't talked to or seen the teams. But I do think there is a formula there where they can play a very strong team against LAFC and have a team they can put on the field that can expect to win against Colorado. And if that doesn't turn out to be a good assumption, have the reinforcements to deal with that game on Saturday. Yeah, um, we'll have to see. I think the other question is kind of what lineup we're going to see from LAFC because LAFC, this will be their third game of four games in a 10-day stretch, and they play Houston in MLS on Friday. So are we going to see LAFC's top lineup? I, I think is a real question. This is where the gap that LAFC has built on the rest of the league becomes comes in handy, yeah. right? Um, if they decided to prioritize Houston over making it farther in Open Cup, I would then go, well, what is that gap you built good for if you're not going to cash that in on some point? Whether it be later in the year resting your players to be prepared for the playoffs or right now so you can prepare yourself for a potential treble. If I were them, I would also want to just keep beating Portland too. 
So that's how I would approach it if I were Bob Bradley. Yeah, I tend to agree on that, particularly because that Houston game for LAFC is on the road. Um, if they need an opportunity to rest players, why not avoid sending them to Houston in the middle of the summer? Yeah, yeah, very true. So I think either way, Jamie, this is going to be a very interesting game. But again, this plays up into a lot of the dynamics that maybe we've talked about too much over this year and a half of LAFC's existence. I think almost any game between Portland and LAFC at this point is interesting, almost inherently. Yeah, and as we said, obviously, um, whatever happens in this game leads into what's going to happen Saturday against Colorado at home at 8 p.m. I already said uh, that I feel as if this is as close to a must-win for the Timbers as you can get at this point in the season. Do you agree or disagree? I disagree. I don't think we have to go into it too much. I think your your logic is sound. I just don't think... In the middle of July, particularly after you claimed three points on the road that you necessarily weren't expecting, I just don't see this as a must-win. I think it would be disappointing because of where Colorado is in the table and the standings. God, I did it again. In the standings, um, I think it would be disappointing, but it's certainly not a must-win. They can reclaim these points elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think when you have the opportunity against a team as weak as Colorado has been, even if they've been a little bit better, um, I think you have to make the most of that. Three points is three points, whether it's against Seattle or Colorado. I, I don't think you want to drop points at home where you can get them. And I think the quicker that the Timbers can get back in the playoff race, uh, the quicker that they can start feeling like it, a, a little bit more sound in the position they're in. So I think our differing opinions might play into how we would each approach this week. But obviously, Giovanni Savaresi has a plan. He already knows who's going to start Wednesday. He already knows who's going to start Saturday. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, to me, the Cincinnati game felt like a bigger missed opportunity for points because, well, we've seen how terrible Cincinnati <laughs> is at this point. The Timbers got smoked. Uh, the Earthquakes game felt like, I don't want to say a bigger must win, but there definitely seemed like there was something to prove at that point, and the Timbers got smoked in it. And they, re- they rebounded from those disappointments, and they ended up winning games in Toronto and um, New York City FC that they probably didn't expect to get points from it, it would be really disappointing if they lost on Saturday it would be right up there with the Seattle and San Jose disappointments if not a greater disappointment because it's at home but there will be points in the schedule where they can make up those points in my opinion yeah I mean maybe we have the same opinion um and I'm just using a term that really shouldn't be used until it actually is I, but I feel like you're using it in the way that sports uses the term so I feel like you're right and I'm using it in the way that like somebody writing a dictionary <laughs> would use it. So you're probably a little bit more platform appropriate at this point. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting no matter what. I think what we're outlining here is that there's more significance to this Rapids game than there is a typical Rapids visit yeah. to Providence Park. Um, speaking of games at Providence Park, we had one on Friday between the Thorns and Seattle Rain FC, a game that played out like I don't think either of us expected it to, Jamie. Your prediction says as much. Yeah, I, I thought the Thorns were going to win this one 3-1. to one. I thought there was going to be goals uh, on both sides. Uh, you said at least one Australian would score on either team. Um, mm-hmm. That Turned out to be a Spaniard. Yeah, that, that did not work out uh, for either of us. Yeah, I don't think we, we saw this coming. The Thorns lose one nothing to the rain at home. Uh, they're definitely not uh, – they definitely aren't feeling that good coming out of this game. Um, I think looking at the game, you know, the Thorns had the best opportunities that they had at the end of the first half. It almost felt to me that that first half came to a close a little bit too soon for them. Had there been five more minutes of stoppage time, they might have got that go-ahead goal. And if they had got that go-ahead goal, that probably would have changed the game. 
but they didn't. Um, Jimenez scores on really a nice strike in the second half, but it comes off origin off what had started as a set piece that the Thorns weren't able to clear. How, how do you sort of feel about Portland's performance coming out of this? Uh, not great. Sometimes you just have to win games, and against a depleted Seattle team, um, a Seattle team that looks like it's going to be a contender throughout the year, was the only other team that had one loss on the season, and um, it looked like you were going to be able to win this game. And then the game changes with a goal, and particularly against a team coached by Vlad Kodanovsky, you don't want to fall behind. And I know last year the Thorns did fall behind to the rain uh, at prominent times and recovered, but they're not there yet. They're not at the level that they were when they were facing the rain last year. You have to look at the attack. The the set piece they conceded on, you never want to concede a goal, <laughs> goal period, but it was a weird one. And I think the Thorns actually did a lot of positive things on that set piece. But Gabby Seiler barely missing in the first half from a long drive. Elizabeth Ball going over the crossbar. Casey Murphy making a great save on a Caitlin Ford re- redirection before halftime. And then Mitch Purse missing a semi-open goal in the second half. The chances were there. The Thorns just have to execute better on those. Yeah, they, they definitely – Midge Purse's chance was definitely especially one that I think she clearly feels like she should be able to put away. Um, she took her headband off and threw it to the ground after that one. I, I think you could see the frustration. Um, I think the other element of this is that they, the Thorns were trying to reintegrate some players. Uh, Caitlin Ford came back in the lineup. Christine Sinclair came back to the lineup. Haley Rosso came off the bench. Andresina came off the bench. Mark Parsons pointed to that as um, – as an important part of the game from his opinion in his post-game press conference, saying that it is difficult to, to reintegrate these players. Do you feel like that played into the attack maybe not clicking, or, or was it more a sense of, of players not just, just not doing well enough with their opportunities? Yeah, I absolutely think it contributed, but I also don't think anybody should use that as an excuse. You can use it as an explanation as to why things didn't click. But if you think of how the Thorns were playing while they're – biggest names were gone they became a very direct team that relied even more on their athleticism than they normally do playing a lot of balls in behind and trying to play back in and use the strengths of players like Mitch Purse and Simone Charlie the Thorns are always going to be a team that can do that but when Caitlin Ford and Christine Sinclair and Haley Rosso are back in the team they're also a team that can play a little bit more with the ball on the ground, combine a little bit more too. And that's the team that they want to be. They want to be a team that can do both. Particularly when Tobin Heath and Lindsey Horan come back in, the style of this team changes. So while the Tim- the Timbers, the Thorns, had the talent out there on Friday, they were kind of caught between two worlds. And I think that explains why we saw not the most impactful game from Christine Sinclair. If there's one player on the field that gets hurt most by being caught between those two worlds, I think it's Christine Sinclair. Because she is in that position where when the, t- when the Thorns are playing more like they would want, she's more involved in every play. She can use her intelligence to read the movements of the team, to see how play is building, to put herself in the places to be most impactful. When the team is just playing direct, there isn't much for her to do in that number 10 role. So I think it's going to be an evolution. I think it is a legitimate point and not just an excuse but it can't be an excuse because the Thorns should have still won that game. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with that. I, I definitely felt like Christine um, what was ineffective, but but maybe that's more to say that she didn't wasn't used in a way where she could be effective. I, I think that's a good way of looking at that. Um, 
yeah, I, I think this game would have changed significantly if one or two of those opportunities ha- had gone in. I, and I think Mark Parsons was right to say that it sort of was a goal that sort of shifted the game. But even so, you felt like the Thorns should have been able to get back in this one at home. I can't remember the last time that they've been held. Uh, well, I lied. But prior to the last two games where they've been held scoreless at home, I can't remember before that, um, the last time they had been held scoreless at home. So that's not something they want to see twice in a row, not able to score at home. I I think they are going to have to figure out what style and what lineup and what formation they want to play now that everyone's coming back, now that the U.S. players are at some point going to be reintegrated as well. I I think Donna's question speaks exactly to that. Um, She wants to know what adjustments this person need to make to get the Thorns scoring again. I think it's a very difficult question to answer in this middle period before you have Tobin Heath and Lindsey Horan back. Because what really rounds the team from being a team that has to rely on its speed and physicality and athleticism to one that can rely on its skill more is those two players. Because those two players have such a great way of reading the game, but then Tobin Heath also can play with the speed that combines those two worlds. I'm not sure that the other players do, or at least some of the other players that we've talked about. Like, Midge Purse has a lot of strengths right now, but she can't live in both of those worlds at this point in time, in my, in my opinion. And I think we can go player by player and see the same thing. So I'm not sure how to answer Donna's question because I feel like if we were at the beginning of a year, you would almost develop a new style that is kind of a hybrid. But you don't want to do that when in two or three weeks you can just go back to being the thorns that are most successful. I mean, how are you feeling about this, Gene? What are your instincts telling you about what the thorns need to do? I think they need to find a way to build this formation and lineup and strategy right now around Christine Sinclair. She needs to be involved in this. And I think that's the question. Is she best used as a number 10 right now? Do you move her up in more of a forward position? You obviously don't want to take a player like Midge Purse off the field, um, but you can move her wide. I, I think those are some of the questions the Thorns need to answer. I, I think coming out of that game, seeing Christine Sinclair come back in um, and not seeing her really be able to do what, what, what makes her so good for the Thorns, I think that was one of the, as you pointed out and thinking about now, I, I feel like that was one of the bigger issues in sort of the strategy that the Thorns laid out in that game. Yeah, and I also feel like some of the changes that were made, I don't know that they were actually evolving the team or building upon the things that the team was doing well in the game. Haley Rosso coming in for Caitlin Ford, maybe that was part of just reintegrating Caitlin Ford, and the team was just kind of like going like for like at that point, but I'm not sure that actually puts you in the best position to build on the momentum that you had going into halftime. And I completely agree with you. If the first half had been 50 minutes long, the Thorns were scoring. I mean, for the last 10 or 15 minutes, they had the ring pinned. They were forcing the rain to move the ball every place that they wanted them to move it, winning the next ball. It was happening, and then halftime came. And then you think about the other changes. Um, to me, Gabby Seiler was the best player in the game. I'm not sure why she came off. And Simone Charlie, I think, brought something different to the game. And her hold-up play and the ability to claim a ball and turn towards goal, I think, helped. But it helped in a way that kind of broke up what the Thorns were doing so successfully before. So maybe that's another example of how it's going to be difficult to weave these players back in because your substitution patterns change and how you would naturally build upon the things you're doing well through the first 60, 75 minutes they have to change too. But I just thought there was a little bit of disconnect in everything that was going on. I mean, including, not to go back to it, but Andrew Senior coming on. 
I saw the logic of play about putting somebody about 40 yards from goal, being able to play a through ball as Seattle gets tighter and tighter and deeper and deeper. But Gabby Seiler, to me, was the best player on the field. And I, I just can't wrap my head around the logic of... Well, I can't wrap my head around the logic of it. It just feels weird. Um, I, I, you know, Dagny Brignard starter had the size to be a target at the end of the game. They went to that a little bit too often over the last 10 minutes. So you can see why. You, you imagine how the game is going to be played over those last 15 minutes and say to yourself, what role does Gabby Seiler really have in this? But it's still, I almost felt like it, it kept Gabby Seiler from getting the the credit she deserves because it's hard to keep too much praise on somebody that had to be taken off during the game. I think the other side of this is how, how much was this on the rain versus thorns? We we've said a lot of what the thorns should have done better. Rich wants to know, um, rich takeaway from the game was that the rain stifled the thorns throughout the game. And what does that say about Vlako and as a coach? Yeah, I think the, the rain certainly made it more difficult on the Thorns, but I don't think stifled is the right term because we rattled off four chances that the Thorns could have converted. However, I do think it is an accomplishment for Vlad Kwanowski the same week that they announced that their talismanic captain, central midfield player, Jessica Fishlock, one of the best players this league's ever seen, is gone for the rest of the year. Megan Rapino is still gone. Ali Long is still gone. Jody Taylor is still gone. You're, they're reincorporating players too into this, and they were able to get that result. Look, if you go ask coaches around this league, they will tell you Vladko Adnowski is the best coach in this league. I happen to agree with that opinion, but who cares if I agree with that opinion when you have all the rest of these coaches who have coached against this guy for seven years just marveling at the adjustments this guy can make, the development that he has with his players, the way that he has his teams playing, um, and how he organizes defenses. And how he organizes defenses was on display on Friday. I... I think Vlad Kowalnowski should be the next coach of the U.S. women's national team. We'll see if that happens, but I think he is the best coach in the league right now. Yeah, um, and, and I, I think he def- he outcoached Mark Parsons this weekend, at least in the sense that I don't think Mark Parsons had. I, I think that he does have to make adjustments when, in terms of reintegrating players and figuring out how this team's going to play. Um, I. I think the Thorns should have done better with their opportunities. I think the strategy, the lineup that Parsons put out there was good enough to beat the Reigns if they rain, if they had just been um, maybe a little bit more clinical in the attack. But I also think coming out of this game, Mark Parsons has to look at making some adjustments to figure out how this team's going to play um, without the U.S. players. Uh, and they are going to have to do that in at least several more games. Yeah, 100%. But as you were talking, and I hadn't thought about this before, it, perhaps Vladko Adonofsky had the virtue of having a team that was in a position to where they had to make sacrifices in the short term. They were in a scuffling mode. They weren't necessarily trying to play for the games beyond Friday. Whereas the Thorns had to, with the reintegration and the expectations, start building to what they want to be long term. I think the rain will be in that position when they get Megan Rapino back and realize how they're going to have to find success without Megan Rapino and Jessica Fishlock in the lineup at the same time. But obviously that couldn't happen on Friday. It allowed them to take a more straightforward point of view of the game. And maybe the Thorns got caught trying to live in two worlds. Well, a game that the Thorns are going to certainly expect to, to have a better attacking performance uh, is coming up on Sunday against Orlando. That's 12 p.m. It's at Providence Park. It's on ESPN News, which... Wow. I don't have, and I, I don't know who actually has. Is that, a, is that actually on TV? You can get it on the ESPN app, which is going to be cool. I, I honestly don't know what channel that is on. 
I, I used to have it, but I cut the cord a while ago. So um, I think you need to have like an enhanced cable package to get it. All right. But, but I mean, the good news is I, you know, I tweeted about this. Uh, one of my friends who's a local bar owner around here kind of texted me. It's like, hey, now that it's on an actual channel, I can put it on in a bar. I never really thought about that yeah, before. That's, um, that's that. I mean, I, I think being associated with ESPN is always helpful. The NWSL has obviously um, done stuff like this in the past. It would be nice if this turned into more of a long-term deal where uh, we're seeing ESPN as the national TV partner for an entire season or Fox if uh, they were to move there. Um, yeah, let's, let's stick with the ESPN. <laughs> hey, I'll take either if it's going to be for a full yeah. season, um, game one to game 24. They, they've had this in the second half a lot before with either Fox or ESPN. It's good to see they're finally getting it again, but I, I want to see where it's going to be more in the long term. Yeah, agree with you. Uh, baby steps into sustainability, right? Yeah. Uh, but before for that game that's going to be on uh, ESPN News, we do have Orlando, a team that has found a couple of wins since the last time Portland faced them. Portland faced Orlando, I believe it was two times in the first four weeks of the season, both in Orlando. Thorns handled them pretty well each time. I, I'll go ahead and confess that breaking down Orlando Pride has not been on the top of my to-do list lately. And part of that is because these teams are slowly going to start seeing players reintegrated. So how much time do you really want to devote to breaking down every team in the NWSL over an aberrational June? But I think the takeaway here is that predictably as bad as Orlando was over the first couple weeks of the season, they're starting to get things together. What the question that I think will define this match, Jamie is whether they've gotten things together enough to actually be a threat on the road in Portland against a team like the Thorns. Yeah, I, I, the, this is a game that the Thorns should be confident going into that they are going to win. Um, I, I think, yeah, Orlando may have gotten things together a, a bit, but especially coming off this rain game where, where the Thorns were playing a better team and felt like they should have been able to win, I, I think anything less than, than a win is going to be a massive disappointment for Portland here. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's go to some of the questions that are being asked out there. When are the U.S. players going to be reintegrated? I think it seems safe to say that Sunday is going to be too soon. It's not my news to share. It's not my news to have even. You hear various things about uh, different players as far as when they're going to come back to Portland, uh, when they're going to be ready. But we are already hearing news about a parade that's going to happen on Wednesday yeah. in New York. We're hearing news about a victory tour that's going to have conflicting dates later in the calendar that doesn't affect this Sunday, but it is going to affect later. It just seems like there are more and more questions around the U.S. national team players' reintegration and how consistently they're going to be able to be with their national teams or with their NWSL teams throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, we'll have to get an update from Mark Parsons later this week. I, I mean, um, I, I guess technically they could go from the the parade on Wednesday and, and fly back to their NWSL teams Thursday and, and be around for a Sunday game maybe off the bench. I don't know if they're going to try to reintegrate so soon. It is strange that what's basically going to happen is even if the players come back for this week, which feels too soon, or or for next week, which maybe feels more likely, that then after that, it sounds like they're going to leave directly again for this victory tour. Um, so in terms of actually reintegrating the U.S. players and having them stay in market, it, it's very unclear when that's going to happen. It just sucks. Yes. And it sucks. What makes it sucks more is that it's clearly a commercial opportunity, and it's something that the women get asked to do, and the the men are never even in, in position to do it. So I guess that's a little bit unfair of a comparison. But 
you have this compensation thing that's going on and you still see the federation putting the women in situation after situation to limit their to not limit but to uh to maximize their full financial capabilities and clearly not all of that money is trickling down to the players i mean within minutes of the u.s winning this weekend you see advertisements going on twitter buy your u.s women's national team gear here buy this t-shirt here the u.s women's national team players should be the high end of them aren't poor by any means but they should be making a lot more money off of their success and i don't i guess if you were to tell me that you know everything should go into one big pile and the money should be split between the men and the women i would be on board with that that's what the men want to do that's fine if you want to look at it as one holistic program and the program supports everybody in the same way but that's clearly not happening right now and it makes it even more disgusting that these players are being pulled away from their club teams to make even more money for the federation. I will say that I, I think from the last CBA, the victory tour ha- has been limited to fewer games than it was before. Um, I think 2015 was like 10 games or something like crazy like that. Yeah. I don't think I forget what the number is this time around, but it's not that. I also think in the last CBA, the, the women took a lot more rights back to their own images. So I think they have the ability to make more money off apparel and, and things like that coming out of this World Cup than they had last time around. Yeah, I mean, that's good that you mention it, but does it does it feel right to you? I, I mean, I, I think taking back more of their their own rights to to monetize themselves is a very no. no good I mean, step. D- does the situation no, feel I, right to you? Clearly, clearly, a lot more needs to be done. Um, but I, I just think that in terms of that context, is yeah, um. So- important that things have changed in that element. I, I do think the women are going to be able to market themselves and monetize themselves a little bit more coming out of this than they were in the previous CBA. Um, but yeah, yeah no, it, obviously there's a so, reason there's a lawsuit out there and there's a lot more that needs to be addressed. Um, I, I mean, Greg touches on a lot of this. He asks us about this, this tour, this victory tour specifically, um, and asks whether he should support it. I mean, like we've said, it does seem to undermine the NWSL. Uh, there's all these tweets yesterday, everyone putting out there. Um, we saw the Budweiser campaign. Now that this is over, uh, now that the World Cup is over, go support your NWSL team. Well, that doesn't mean that you're actually going to be supporting these players that you just watched in the World Cup because they, they might not be there with a victory tour. Um, so, I mean... Should Greg, should, should fans be supporting this victory tour? Uh, do we have a sense of how the women's national team even feels about it? Um, and, and does this victory tour have any impact in terms of the U.S.'s cause going into, um, you know, more of these pay debates with, with U.S. soccer? Hmm. So in terms of how the players feel about it, obviously, if they want to go on record with it, we should pay attention to that. That's their choice. My experience in asking players about it is there's no one answer. Some players some players are okay with it, kind of see it as part of their job, see it as part of the, their core playing identity. Some players just want a normal soccer playing world. And that means you go to the tournaments, you come back to your club team. You go to the friendlies, you come back to your club team. You don't leave for these tournaments far out of the window. You don't have to spend extra time with your national team. One of their players aren't. But that's not a universal opinion at all. Regarding whether to support these things, I think you know people who follow me on Twitter know that I was very on Twitter yesterday. I think there's a lot of things out there 
um, that we've seen recently that we should question whether we want to throw our money behind them. I mean, I see these scenes in the Gold Cup where this horrific chant is still being allowed. Um, and I say allowed in the sense that clearly enforcement is not happening or else the chant would be diminishing at least. And you have to ask yourself, why would I support CONCACAF? Why would I support this venue? Why would I support anything that these teams are involved in if this is continuing to go to happen? I mean, think of any other abhorrent messaging that we've had throughout the history of the world and ask yourself if the fans, if 25% of the stadium were filled with that messaging, would you want to attend it? And then ask yourself, why are we giving the Gold Cup a break on this? And I feel very I feel very strongly about the Gold Cup, but at some point, we have to start asking the same questions about the women's national team too. They are so successful and so profitable and so good for soccer in this country. They should be priority number one, not the afterthought here. And they're, they're having to sue to become something other than the afterthought. I think people should strongly consider where they want to put their money because that is where... That's where these things often end up changing. Jamie, I've been going on for a long time. How do you feel about it? I I think that anyone who supports women's soccer should support the women's national team, even on this victory tour. I think there are a lot of questions about it, and I think it's far from ideal. At the same time, I I think having big crowds and coming back and making this money right now is going to help the team in terms of its um, pursuit for the continued pursuit for this equal pay. Um, the, 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 The players do get a percentage of, of the gate fees. It's not like they're not going to make any money off this victory tour. It's a higher percentage than they got in the previous CBA. Um, but but I, I think the other element is of it is having these full stadiums and showing the interest level of women's soccer, which I expect there will be coming back from this World Cup win, I, I think is important for the women's cause. At the same time, I'm disappointed that they, still U.S. soccer doesn't seem to prioritize the growth of the NWSL when it comes to, to building off these World Cup uh, victories. They, the same thing in 2015. It, they, there's a sense that we want to grow the NWSL. Uh, people should, fans should, now that the World Cup's over, fans should go back and support the NWSL. But then they don't put... The, the the money where their mouth is really you know they don't let the u.s players come back and be involved in that so that fans that are tuning in are saying hey there's megan rapino there's alex morgan no they're gonna go turn tune into the victory tour because that's where those players are um so I'm, i am really disappointed that they for some odd reason are to feel like they can't take the nwsl game days in, into consideration in, in scheduling this but it's not enough that i would not support um the women in these games because I, I still think that's important for the growth they're trying to achieve at that level. Yeah, I, I can completely respect that. And I I guess I would probably respect anybody's thought process, even if it led to a different conclusion, because I do think there are different ways to to reach your conclusion. I, I would just encourage everybody to give it some thought, not just default to saying, oh, well, I why are we not going to go to games? Like sometimes it takes sacrifices on all levels for things to happen. Uh, I guess I would ask the question and I think anybody can answer this how they want. We'll just encourage people to, to think about whether they really think it's better for not only the women's game, but the women's national team in the long run to continue sacrificing the growth or the growth opportunities of the NWSL just to maximize short-term profits for the women's national team. My personal opinion is that long-term, 
a stronger NWSL means a stronger women's game and a stronger women's national team. And a lot of that strength is going to be derived over the next few years and how you are mobilizing people to these individual stadiums and starting to create some kind of momentum going forward for the NWSL. Because right now it just seems like the league is standing still. Even the little things like undermining three or four match days on a calendar when that calendar is in the most focus ever for your target demographics, it hurts. And so I would, I just, I think everybody can have a a trade off in their mind as to how much it hurts, but I think we all should think about it. Yeah, no, I I mean, it it definitely isn't going to help the NWSL. Um, there is obviously a interest in women's soccer, um, right now, uh, that's been peaked by the world cup. Uh, outside of these games that, that obviously um, there's mixed feelings about the women's national team having to go on this victory tour and, and how it's going to impact or undermine the NWSL. But what do you sort of see right now as what the NWSL needs to do to leverage the interest in women's soccer? Tim asked specifically, um, does the NWSL need a path to expansion that leverages larger male clubs uh, similar to what's happening in Europe, but similar to what's happening with the Thorns, what, what we've seen here really? Um, I, I think we also saw um, a, the fan group out of Los Angeles uh, tweeted something along the lines of let's support the NWSL, but it would be great to have a team in California. Why isn't there one yet? Uh, <laughs> what, what are sort of your opinions about what we need to see so that the NWSL does feel like it's moving forward and in the right direction instead of maybe standing still? Is the premise behind the LA fan groups? Uh, is the premise behind their question is that the NWSL is avoiding Los Angeles, that the people in Chicago are like, oh, we don't want to be in the second biggest market in the country. Why would we want that? Look, I mean, teams that ha- cities that have owners that want to have teams have teams. Yeah. And I, the bottom line for me is you just need the best owners possible. You need the owners that are going to be able to support their players. You need the owners that are going to be able to go out and start building a product. You need owners that are going to have the liquidity to manage the ups and downs that come with starting a team. And whether those franchises are in Los Angeles or Louisville or Tulsa or Boston, you, the key thing here is providing those, that stability to grow from. And of course, you would rather teams be in Boston and New York City itself and Los Angeles and Dallas, of course. But in the short term, you just need the best people possible running these teams. And so beyond any kind of broad plan or vision that tries to, um, you know, tries to seize on any of these kind of trends that we're seeing in the women's game, you just need people who are going to be there for the long run who can actually afford to run these teams. Yeah, and I think that's where the idea of partnering with MLS teams still makes a lot of sense and why it's been effective here in Portland, here in Utah, to a lesser extent Orlando, and, and to a to potentially even lesser extent Houston. But I think that still is um, a formula that, that makes a lot of sense because it comes with the infrastructure, it comes with the facilities, it comes with somewhat of a built-in fan base that might want to support any team um, in that market and the marketing around uh, those teams as well. I, I still think that's the way to go overall, but but you're right. It's about good ownerships. And I, part of the reason the NWSL has moved away from expansion in recent years is because they're trying to – it's been a focus on making sure the teams that are in the league – um, are doing what they need to be doing. And there clearly are teams right now in the league that aren't where they need to be, that I would love to see new ownership for, uh, for example, Sky Blue and maybe a mm-hmm. new market and have something like we saw 
um, in Western New York, having that team move uh, elsewhere and get a new ownership. Um, there's clearly work that needs to be done with the teams that are in there. There's clearly areas that I would love to see expansion MLS teams in good markets that I'd love to see those owners step up, but there, there's a lot of questions about it right now that not every team in this league um, is any, I mean, anywhere near the level of the thorns in, in Utah. I, you need more, you need every team in the league hitting a, a specific bar. And I'm not sure that that bar is being hit by every team right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say the only other thing that I would add to this is the USL route. Yeah. So we have two teams in the league right now that are partnered with USL teams. Maybe we've exhausted the interest in MLS side. I, I hate to say that because it seems so ridiculous that some of these MLS teams aren't looking at this as an opportunity just, you know, with the restrictions on spending, just have an awesome revenue stream. I mean, there's only so much you're actually allowed to spend on these teams, at least on the field. But I think of a market like San Antonio where they have a stable USL team. They have certainty regarding their venue. It'd be great to have a women's team in San Antonio. But So hopefully hopefully, when the league moves forward, as the league move forward, moves forward, they'll be keeping the San Antonios of the world alive as they do. Yeah, and we sort of said this before we get to predictions. We sort of went about this in a sort of backwards way um, just because we were talking about Orlando, the U.S. players getting back, and then the, the, there's so many issues that arise from that. But But let's just take a minute to to mention uh, that the U.S. won its fourth World Cup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think they not only won the fourth World Cup, but I think they showed that there's a gap between them and yeah. the rest of the world that we hadn't really perceived anymore. I mean, there is a top tier to women's soccer internationally right now, and it involves one team, yeah. and that's the United States. And uh, for four years, we've debated Jill Ellis, and I think we should still debate Jill Ellis because some of the things that she has done, it's worth questioning. Her benching of Lindsay Horan... We needed to ask about that, but in hindsight, it looks like a defensible move, as much as it hurts us in this market to admit that. She has now gone 14 World Cup games without a loss. She's 13-0-1. The draw against Sweden in group stage in 2015 is her only blemish. She has back-to-back world titles. Not only that, she's created an environment where this team that is the most talented in the world can play like the most talented team in the world, and that's harder to do than it sounds like. And at this point... Any arguments against Jill Ellis are um, uh, anachronistic. We'll put it like that. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, Vlako Andonovsky is going to be the national team coach anytime soon, um, as, as you stated earlier, because I don't think U.S. soccer can or, or will uh, want Jill Ellis going anywhere else at this moment uh, after those two World Cups. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it'll be up. It'll definitely be up to Jill. I think there was a there's a general feeling that after the Olympics, she's likely to move on, but you don't know. Uh, it's going to be completely in her court, and obviously, uh, she doesn't seem like somebody that needs to move yeah. on. I think that's just more. It's hard to imagine a three cycle coach. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I I, I agree with you. Um, I think that everyone going to this World Cup said it would be the most competitive World Cup um, that we've ever seen, and I, I think that. Stand, it stands true for the most part in terms of across the board, but the U.S. the the U.S. had some tough games, but they never really struggled in this tournament. Like I they I thought they might uh, against France or, or or something like that. It felt pretty clear the throughout the games, especially how early they scored in each match, that they were going to win this tournament, and they were um, head and shoulders above pretty much every other team there. Yeah, they never trailed. Yeah, 
exactly. and I don't even think there I don't even think there was a point where we thought that the U.S. were particularly vulnerable. Um, even going into the Spain match one one at halftime, you were kind of thinking to yourself, "Well, this is kind of weird. They they kind of need to get their heads in this a little bit." But I think that was the greatest period of worry throughout the whole yeah. tournament, and it's an incredible testament to what the staff and the players were able to build over four years that they got themselves to that point, to the point where they needed to be their best, and I felt like they were. All right, let's move on to looking forward, um, not to the U.S. Women's National Team. We're not going to predict victory tour scores or performances or anything crazy like that. But to Timbers and Thorns, uh, starting with Wednesday's games, Timbers at LAFC. I am going to go with a 3-1 LAFC win. It seems perfectly reasonable. I'm going to, of course, take a, a little bit of a different tact and try to, I guess, in this prediction, try to describe how the game is going to go a bit. I'm saying that these two teams are going to combine for at least 30 shots taken, which means I'm seeing this as a pretty open game, a pretty aggressive game. I don't think the Timbers are going to try to shy away from LAFC. They haven't to this point, and they've been making progress against them. I think both teams are going to have a lot of opportunities in this game to put up a lot of goals. The next game of the week will be Timbers versus Colorado at home. I, I wish I, I could just get a sheet of the lineups for this entire week before making predictions because it would absolutely change <laughs> what prediction I would yeah. make. But um, that's why um, I do not work for the team <laughs> um, and make predictions, I guess. Uh, Wait, I, I would love to have that information. I mean, too, yeah, maybe you way. don't have it either. But not quite I'm, yet. I'm, I'm not Gio Savarasi. So, uh, right-hand man or anything like that. So I don't know what the Timbers will do lineup-wise for Colorado. That would potentially change what I would say, but I'm going to go with a 2-0 Timbers win. That seems pretty safe, and particularly given that I don't really see a scenario where we see a full-strength team against Colorado, although the varying strengths, uh, we already debated yeah. that. I'm going with a Marvin Luria goal. I really wanted to try to pick somebody who I thought was going to be a lineup question mark for this one and really increase the value of this bet a little bit. So I think Marvin Luria is personally my best bet to score in this one of that group of players and already moved to two goals on the year in that sense. All right. And Thorns versus Orlando. Um Another opportunity for the Thorns to, to, to end this uh, scoreless streak at home. I'm going to go, I think they will, and I'm going to go with the 2-0 Thorns wins here too. I think one of the things that is going to come up this week is the second game against Orlando. They actually conceded a goal. They conceded on a set piece on a corner kick. I think keeping a clean sheet in addition to approving their attacking performance is going to be a priority this week. So I'm going to go with Thorns keeping a clean sheet. Right. Um, unfortunately, I, I, with the holiday weekend, I didn't do a good job uh, of reaching out to Mark this morning, and so I don't have the fantasy update, but we will have that next time we record. Uh, that will not be next week. I will, Like I said at the beginning, I will be taking a week off, and then it'll be me and Caitlin coming back the week after to discuss a lot of Timbers and Thorns soccer uh, that'll be going on uh, in the week we're taking off. Richard, thank you so much for for a year. Oh, that's right. A year and a half. How, how I don't know how long you've been on this podcast, but uh, I think about a year. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna miss recording with you every week. Yeah, I'm gonna miss these conversations, Jamie. I really am. Um, but yeah, it is. I guess it is what it is. But yeah, I'm gonna miss these conversations. I'm gonna miss interacting with people online about these conversations too. But thank you for having me on the show and. I was going to wish you the best of luck, but that seems like <laughs> that seems dumb. I know the show is going to be great, so I hope you. I wish you the best of fun going <laughs> forward. 
Well, I will definitely try to have the best of fun. I know uh, people will continue to be able to listen to your podcasts on Timbers.com, doing some cool stuff with um, your new podcast, talking to players, talking to people in the soccer community, so uh, and also on Timbers and 30. So people can hear your voice. It just won't be talking to me. Um, (laughs) But if they want to continue to listen to Soccer Made in Portland, um, you can find us every week on Oregon Live and Stumptown Footy. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, or until the week after, take care.